This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 15th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. North Korea's military hardware parade unveiled some new offensive weapons, and some of them would presumably be aimed at the United States. So how does engagement with the hermit kingdom change? What are the implications for U.S. troop presence in the South? And how should South Korea and China respond? Cato's Eric Gomez and Doug Bandau comment. Well, North Korea typically uses its parades to send messages. And this time, there was a lot of new hardware in the parade. You know, you're never quite sure how operational it all is, but small arms, tanks, radar systems. But what was most exciting was it appears to a new larger ICBM that the presumption is could reach the United States and might even be able to hold a MIRV warhead, a multiple independent reentry. Uh, so that suggests that they wanted us to know that they've been working on these things. Well, it was accompanied by a speech that was rather peaceful and kind of indicating this was all for defense and worried about economics. So it was an interesting mix, but uh, everybody took note of the new hardware. Yeah, and to echo what Doug said, I think that for, for the ICBM, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un did issue a uh, policy direction a couple of years ago where he said that they would be moving toward mass production of both missile capabilities and other things associated with the nuclear deterrent. And it seems like this was, you know, this is a good sign for that, uh, to, to roll out a new model, uh, to presumably have the ability to heavily modify the vehicles carrying them, if not to produce their own vehicles for them. Uh, previously, they've been reliant on just a handful of things imported from China almost a decade ago. Um, so the fact that they're making that kind of progress is, I think, notable. Um, I also, you know, I think the big missile and the ICBM is going to get a lot of attention. I'm almost more concerned about some of the conventional stuff. Uh, they That's been the thing that they've tested most recently, and they displayed a lot at the parade. And those things they can definitely uh, produce a lot of um, in terms of both the missiles and the launch vehicles for them. Uh, so I think that might be more important. In the, in the Where do we expect uh, this new military hardware to be pointed? Certainly, we're concerned about uh, it being pointed at the United States. But my suspicion is that Seoul is a more immediate concern. Yeah, definitely the shorter range conventional stuff is for Seoul. Uh, when they tested these systems earlier um, this year and in 2019, a lot of those tests were tied to Seoul unveiling either new F-35s that it purchased from the United States or other similar capabilities. So it's sort of like a direct threat to South Korea's uh, new new stuff. For the ICBMs, that's all us. <laughs> those, are, those are definitely uh, pointed solely at the United States. Of course, mid-range missiles could hit Guam, could hit Okinawa, Japan. So th there's, there's a mixture here of potential threats. But it does look like they've worked on a number of different uh, you know, weapons. And the, uh, the launch systems are very important because the mobile systems are hard for us to deal with. And they certainly make it very difficult for the U.S. to imagine a preventive strike. And I think that's certainly an element here of you put enough reentry or you put enough of these uh, launch vehicles, these tells out there where you can move them around you're in a much better position, also using solid fuel. They're trying to move away from liquid fuel, at least on the uh, the, uh, the, more, the shorter range missiles. Yeah. And the big, the big difference between a solid and a liquid 
just because I don't know if our listeners are all as as nerds about that as as we are, but liquid liquid missiles usually have to be transported and then fueled prior to firing, which is a very time intensive and dangerous process because it's very volatile chemicals. For uh, solid, the missile the fuel is cast into the body of the missile, so it's a lot more. You can erect it and fire it much faster. So there's less prep time. There's less chance it gets discovered before it fires. Right. So there is a, that greater potential of uh, getting found out well before uh, firing a missile, and that may make it less useful. Absolutely. How does this change our discussions with uh, North Korea, if at all? I mean, the United States seems to have tread fairly lightly for uh, some time. Uh, does it change who needs to be uh, at the head of the table when it comes to having discussions with North Korea? I think it needs to change the U.S. perspective because as the program keeps advancing, you're sort of running out of runway to actually stop them, right? Before it was, well, maybe we can get something before they test an ICBM. Well, they cross that. Maybe we can get something before they test, you know, solid fuel, longer range stuff. Well, they're passing that now. So there's not much, there's not many more steps you can stop them. And so I think the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be to actually negotiate anything away because they'll they'll have it and it'll be too late to kind of prevent it from happening. So I think the and I think Doug and I have both been saying this for for several years now that the US really needs to move away from this sort of denuclearization or bust mindset where we're not going to accept anything less than the complete denuclearization of North Korea because once you do that I think there's more room to consider other measures that are not as sweeping, but can maybe help solve this. But the longer we wait, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, and the price goes up for any deal that we might make. The more they have, you know, the more they're going to ask for getting rid of something. And also, they will always have the expertise. You can't roll that back. I think the other message, particularly for a potential Biden administration, is you better not wait. I mean, the Obama administration was characterized by strategic patience and in not doing much to deal with North Korea. And what we've seen over that period of time is they moved ahead on ICBMs, other missiles, and on nuclear weapons and testing. Well, what they've shown us here is if you wait, guess what? We, we create more stuff. So that's going to put pressure on them. It puts some pressure on President Trump if he's reelected. But I do think that particularly for the Biden administration, they're going to come in. They're going to be worried about Iran. They're going to be worried about COVID. Their temptation will be to put North Korea off. But the, what we've seen at this parade sends a pretty clear message. If you do that, we have another year. And my guess is at that point, they'll be testing the ICBM that we saw. It hasn't been flight tested yet. That would be a huge step, but that would be very provocative. That would be the next thing to do. And it's notable they didn't do that yet. And I think this is this is kind of the the, you know, the mailed fist within the velvet glove. We have all this stuff, but we haven't actually waved it around at you yet. But that could come. Doug, uh, for a long time, I remember you saying uh, over and over again in relation to North Korea is this. They're not suicidal. Uh, it seems like any use of uh, a weapon offensively against another country would be met with overwhelming responses. So how seriously should we take the risk, even if North Korea is able to achieve 
delivery capacity and uh, a- able to have the ability to hand the U.S. Uh, a-, a devastating attack. Well, they're not going to intentionally start a war. The problem is there's lots of stuff that can go wrong. Number one, dealing with North Korea is very different than dealing with Russia. I mean, Russia, in terms of its doctrines for use of nuclear weapons and control systems, my presumption is there are much better controls there. North Korea is a very different system, leadership. You know, does, who has the button besides Kim Jong-un? I mean, there's a lot of this that we don't have much sense for. The second is there's a lot that can go wrong given the potential threat against them. I was very nervous in 2017, where if you're threatening rhetoric, you're sending, as the president said, the armada, you're sending our bombers over the peninsula to show how tough we are. Well, North Korea, to some degree, its military is use it or lose it. I mean, give us a week of bombing and we're going to be taking out an awful lot of their stuff. So if they perceive the likelihood of a preventive attack, preventive war, you know, that might push them you know, in terms of launching preemptively. I mean, I, so I think the danger here is we're dealing with a regime. It's not suicidal, but it's probably more hair trigger. And the, the internal decision-making system and everything, we don't quite know how it works. We're much less comfortable. So it would be far better if they didn't have the ability to hit the American homeland. And if they get that and, and they have it in a way that they can really target, really hit, that really raises questions about our commitment there. Are we prepared to go even to a conventional war with a country that conceivably could incinerate American cities, where if they lose the war, why you know they wouldn't have much reason not to do it. So it raises the stakes. The more missiles they build, the greater the range, the greater the accuracy. That does create additional dangers for us, though not literally them trying to launch a preemptive attack and you know take us out. If the United States, uh, Eric, woke up tomorrow and said, you know what? That Doug Bandow makes a lot of sense. We should do what he thinks is uh, best with respect to North Korea. And we decided suddenly, you know, those tens of thousands of troops we've got over there, maybe we ought to bring those home. Maybe they're provocative in a way that we don't, we don't uh, want to deal with. What would that impose on first Seoul, South Korea? What, uh, what would that impose on China? two big things would happen. Number one, we could claim uh, that holy grail of think tankdom, which is policy relevance, uh, which would be great. The second thing is that, so for, for South Korea, I think the problem might not be that actually pronounced. We don't really give South Korea enough credit, I think, in the United States about how well the, the job they've done in improving their own military and thinking hard about providing for their own defense. I know Trump has tried to make a big deal about allies that don't pay their share or don't pull their weight. South Korea isn't one of those. It does pay its share and it does pull its weight. Um, So from a strategic perspective, I think the U.S. could stand to reduce its presence on the Korean peninsula without sort of creating this negative problem of making a North Korean attack more likely, right? And that's always, that's long been the sort of rationale for keeping the presence there. Uh, so I think we could reduce that um, for sure. And if a president was cagey, they would use that as part of the diplomatic process with the North Koreans. Um, I don't think Trump is doing that. I think he wants, <laughs> I think he just doesn't like US troops in Korea, period, and wants to get rid of them. Um, but you could conceivably include that in some kind of negotiation with the North. For the Chinese, I think 
I'm not sure what a troop presence in South Korea does vis-a-vis the China relationship, but there's going to be a lot of pressure to keep a large presence in South Korea if the focus is this great power competition idea with the Chinese. Regardless of what would you actually use those troops to do, I think the assumption in Washington is keep them there because they are already there and it therefore it good. Um, I'm not sure the South Koreans see that the same way. I don't think they would like it if, if U.S. troops on their territory were used in a hypothetical China conflict. Um, but I think that might be a big driver here and, and a, a source of resistance to the United States considering reductions, even if it could help solve the North Korea problem. And then, I, I you know, to, to sort of offer a last point here, I think the time and not being on the U.S. side is a big factor in all this that I already mentioned it earlier. The longer the U.S. waits to to have some kind of arms control arrangement with the North Koreans or, or something less than full denuclearization, the worse it's going to get. We're not building any more leverage. We're not stopping the development of their program as evidenced in the parade. There's nothing, there's no real gain uh, from adhering to this political goal of denuclearization or, or bust. So I hope that you know, either a Trump second term or a Biden first term would realize this and begin that change. Because I think once that change happens, a lot more potential flexibility comes into play on the U.S. side. And we can we can be more creative with the diplomatic approach. So I would encourage that change in U.S. policy first and foremost. Yeah, if I could add, I think that the use of the troops, you know, it could be very helpful in terms of some of the negotiations. For example, if you want to convince the Chinese to get tougher, which could result conceivably in a collapse of North Korea and potentially a reunification of the peninsula, they'll be a lot more willing, I think, to go down that road if they don't expect the U.S. to have bases on United Korea and troops on their border. And the South Koreans have no interest in getting involved in, say, a war with China over, uh, I don't know, Taiwan. They've been reluctant to criticize China even over Hong Kong. The notion that they would, because if you if you allow the U.S. to use bases in South Korea in a conflict, you've turned yourself into a target. And you've turned yourself into a target to your permanent neighbor, which is going to have a very long memory. So this is one of those things. The uh, former president, uh, Nomu Hyun, made very clear that uh, the U.S. would not be using those bases for purposes that he didn't approve. You know, so I think this is, this is something that should be discussed with South Korea. A lot of American policymakers assume that these are bases we can use for any purpose that we desire. Not at all clear that the South Koreans would go along with that. And frankly, if I was South Korea's president, I wouldn't want that as well. Because the United States would effectively be enlisting South Korea in whatever crazy cuckoo bananas adventure the U.S. wants to get into. Oh, that's right. And even if, in a sense, it's not a you know, defensive Taiwan, you know, is is a really tough issue. But if you're next door and you're South Korea, your view probably is, you know, no, no, we're not going to get involved in that one because China makes a special claim to Taiwan. If China and the United States start shooting at each other. The last thing South Korea wants to be is part of that. So even if it's not 
truly cuckoo. Even a kind of a rational U.S. policy may very well diverge from South Korean interests. We hate to admit that in the U.S. that our allies and we often have different interests. In a case like this, South Korea has very different you know, way of looking at a conflict like that. And there's there's three conflict areas, you know, for a U.S.-China situation. South China Sea, which is way too far away from forces in South Korea to be of any use, unless we expand the theater into Northeast China, which I hope we wouldn't. Um, East China Sea, which is a Japanese territorial claim. South Korea is the closest to that area, but South Korea and Japan aren't the best of friends. So it's hard to see why the South Koreans would support a U.S. move to protect a Japanese territorial claim when South Korea and Japan have other territorial disputes themselves. And then finally, the Taiwan scenario, which for the reasons Doug just mentioned, South Korea would probably be rather reluctant um, because it would certainly turn it into a target because that's like that's the biggest deal of the three, right? If, if, if the U.S. and China are fighting each other over the fate of Taiwan, then that's a very, very big and important conflict and one that, again, is probably not in South Korea's interest to pursue. Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where Eric Gomez directs defense policy studies. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.